Welcome to the Scary Saiyan Getty. We're your hosts, David Springer and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to our podcast and leave us an awesome five-star review and follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter. We're here to talk about some recent news headlines and hopefully provide some insight, analysis, and practical application that you can take into the office to help you protect your organization. And as usual, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. So join us on the Security Serengeti as we navigate the wilds of the digital landscape and keep you one step ahead of the hackers. Hey, I just heard that we're not going to get cyber insurance next year. Prices have gone up too too much. It looks like hackers are more expensive than hurricanes. Our first article is San Francisco terminates explosive killer robots. I'll be back. Or perhaps not. You know, that's the register. Of course. <laughs> Nobody else knows how to write a headline except the register. Seems that way. I mean, that's the next best thing to, you know, Dewey beats Truman. <laughs> but anyway, so if you remember a couple episodes back, we talked about the San Francisco Board of Supervisors approving the use of lethal, lethal force robots. So now they've come out and said, oh, no, 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 no. But you police can't use these remote control robots with explosives. You know, for now. Cowards. That's exactly what Bender said. So So the city's board of supervisors unanimously voted to explicitly prohibit lethal force by police robots following the, the public backlash for after their eight to three vote on the 29th of November saying, yeah, let's use killer robots. So the reason that this is for now is they haven't actually stopped the, uh, the rollout of the lethal robots. What they've done is they've sent that, that, that uh, rule back to the rules committee for further debate, quote unquote. So if the committee says, you know, they'll, they'll make whatever changes they're going to make, and then they'll send it back up to the board of supervisors to vote on it again, or it will die in committee and they won't send it back up. So did they change their minds or was there just enough public backlash that they were just like, Ooh, hold on there, buddy. Well, it had to be the public backlash because they voted eight to three, only three people dissented in the original vote just a couple of weeks ago. And if you recall, when we were talking about this originally, there was the initial language says robots will never be used for lethal force. And then they changed it. So this is just the politicians being politicians saying, oh, well, we made a mistake, you know, when in fact they, they fully considered the idea and did it anyway. And surprise, surprise, the cops are not happy about it. My God. So... The San Francisco PD Chief William Scott had this to say. Part of our job is to prepare for the unthinkable. And to not prepare for the unthinkable would be irresponsible. We cannot be limited in how we are able to respond if and when the worst case scenario incident occurs in San Francisco. I mean, this is, this would solve their shoplifting problem so quickly. Just, you know, a couple hundred drones, a few milligrams of C4 per drone. That's true. But they would have to decide that shoplifting was a crime again. But I mean, this whole statement by him is, is, is nonsensical. If it's unthinkable, you can't think it. But if you don't think the unthinkable, then you're irresponsible. Guy's a moron. I mean, what would they do if a cryogenically preserved supervillain from 1993, subconsciously infused with three decades of combat training, were to be unfrozen today? Oh, easy. You unfreeze his nemesis, who was also frozen for property damage at the same time. 
and murder. Yeah, yeah, but he's got three decades of knitting training infused in him instead. Be well, John Spartan. The, so the SFPD is trying to say, well, we don't want these robots to kill people. We want them to save people, of course. And we would only use this in a life-threatening scenario. So he tries to equate this to, they would only use robots as a lethal option when they would instead have to send an officer on a suicide mission. I mean, these, these people must live in the movie theaters or something. Like this shit actually happens or something like that. This is ridiculous. But How we're often just do they this... feel like they're sending cops on suicide missions? Considering that most of them die from heart attacks, probably every time they go to Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> you all right? <laughs> so hopefully this is going to die in committee. But my guess is that they're, that, that they're just going to sit on this till the heat dies down, change a couple of words that don't really change the ultimate meaning of it. And then you're going to have Ed 209s on San Francisco here sometime next year. Oh boy. Uh, and what you should do about it is not use a radio frequency jammer to prevent the robots from getting the signals they need to blow you up. Do they all just use something as similar as radio? Like how broad a frequency jammer are we talking here? I, I, I don't know, but you shouldn't use that. Because right, that's yeah. against the law. So I'm saying yeah. that if it's a choice between getting blown up by a robot, you should not use a frequency jammer in order to prevent that robot from being able to get the signals necessary or in order to blow alternatively, you, you could just build your, I don't know if you've been into it, you probably haven't, you don't have any kids, build your, build your villain's lair like a Walmart or a Target or a school because I can't get cell phone signal in any of those. No, yeah, Wegmans is the same way. Grocery store, it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I've, I'm trying to debate whether they're doing that on purpose or it's I don't know because the, in DC, they used to have that problem with the, with the, the Metro, but then they put cell phone repeaters in the tunnels finally. So you can actually get cell phone, at least in the stations. Yeah. So I think it's just a, it's just a matter of the design. It's a lot of steel and concrete. So I think it's just the, the nature of the building because there are actually parts of the building at work that I don't get signal in either. But, uh, if you want to, I guess it, it depends on where, I mean, if you plan on doing your, your last stand at your house then you could Faraday's cage your house, when you put up your aluminum siding, make sure you've got uh, like a copper backing on it or whatever. And I think you'll be good to go there. Mm -hmm. Actually you could use vital siding as long as you still have the same copper backing on it. Yeah. Copper is kind of expensive nowadays. So you're talking about a pricey endeavor to prevent yourself from being blown up. I think a jammer, if it were illegal, <laughs> would be the best way to go. Fair enough. Went a little deep there. All right. For our next article, dozens of cybersecurity efforts are included in this year's NDAA, which is the National Defense Authorization Act, correct? Correct. Hey, good for me. So the NDAA is something that's passed every year and it contains basically all of the funding measures, well, at least all of the documented funding measures for the military. Well, it's the first one. What's the first one? Well, because they're always going to do an emergency funding, then they're going to do contingency operations funding. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Sorry. Yep. You know, but officially, this is supposed to cover the defense spending for the entire year. We should have switched these. Do you want to just go and do this? You probably know way more about this than I do. I, I don't know anything. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. So we're going to do, we're going to hit this quickly because we have some bigger discussions to talk about later, but it's 4,408 pages. And I'm sure that every single person voting on this is going to read every one of those pages to make an educated decision on this. You mean they read them? Cause I think they had 24 hours, which is plenty of time. <laughs> what, I mean, wanna, that's a hundred, that's like 200 pages per minute or per hour. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for the average person who reads 
four Stephen King novels a day. This totally is a, this doable. is a breeze. Totally doable. Yep. yep. And uh, it's just as riveting. Bet. Every bet. They're totaling this year for $858 billion, an increase of 10%. I don't, is that just to make sure that the Republicans can't jump on the Democrats for being, you know, weak on the military? Or is this just part of the fact that both parties keep funding the military more and more each year? Yeah, exactly. Because any any new project is distributed throughout as many congressional districts as possible to ensure that they all have a stake in ensuring that program keeps running. So like the, the F-35, for instance, I think is in like 90%. Part of it is part of it is built in like 90% of the different districts within Congress or something this like that. This nut is built here. This screw is built here. Yeah, basically. <laughs> That's why Eisenhower originally called it the military industrial congressional complex. Didn't yeah, know that. that was in the early draft. I can't remember. I don't think there's, I haven't heard anything specific about why he cut it. I think uh, he was just advised not include that in the, in the title of his farewell, in his farewell address. And, you know, actually one of the quotes from the article talks about that. They talk about how, you know, quote, they include Congresswoman Slotkin's legislation to reauthorize the Secret Service's National Computer Forensics Institute. Congresswoman Luria's bill to author, like each congressperson seemed to just insert their own Little bit of pork in there that they wanted to get in there. Right. I mean, that's why when the when the president proposes the 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 funding, they always up it because, you know, he forgot about some bit of kickback or whatever that the it's important uh, some to their, district's expecting. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. So they list twelve military related cyber provisions in well, they say there's dozens, but they only list twelve in the article, and we are not gonna talk about all of them because that's too many. And it'd be pretty boring. The ones that I wanted to call out, although, and then maybe David wants to call out a couple as well, but the big one for me was the five-year AI roadmap. So they provide a 13-step roadmap in there. I read over the steps. The steps were really general, which I guess makes sense for a bill like this. They probably don't want the Congress telling the org how to do it, but I just found it very interesting. This is the first time I've seen, although obviously I'm not a huge military follower, but this is the first time I've seen AI become an official part of their strategy and roadmap. Yeah. The article says that they are rapidly going to adopt artificial intelligence applications for the wife warfighter cyber, cyber missions within the DOD. Skynet. Uh, yep. So you heard it here first. This is the, <laughs> this is where Skynet gets its initial funding before it kills us all. Kills us all. Oh boy. One of the other things that they put in here under defense, which, you know, I don't think makes sense for the defense department to do it, but they have election security and, and threats reporting. So they, this directs a biannual or biennial unclassified report to be produced through 2032 on Cybercom's efforts to ensure election security and counter election threats. So biennial um, so, is occurring every two years, just FYI. I, I never know if biannual is every two years or, but. Yeah, I think, I mean, because perennial would be annually. Yep. And semi-annually would be twice a year. So what is biannually then? Probably the same as biennial. I don't know, I'm not an English major. <laughs> so if you look it up, yeah, but so biannual is twice a year. So I guess biennial is what changes it to once every two years. English language is yeah. yeah, so I'm sure that the whole point of this is for them to take Bruce Schneier's advice and they're going to make the voting machines with open source software with an audible paper, tra paper trail. 
Oh, yes, absolutely. Another one which I wanted to touch on was the pilot program to share cyber capabilities with foreign partners. Uh, so the NDA is going to establish a pilot program to allow the Secretary of Defense to share cyber capabilities with operational foreign partners under the bill. The SecDef, with the concurrence of the Secretary of State, will would draw up a list of countries that they think are suitable for them to provide them with the cyber capabilities. Not only we can't, the U.S. can't just be number one in physical arms sales. So we have to also be number one in cyber arms sales, apparently. Well, we got to get out there and corner that market before something else does it. Before the Chinese or the Russians do. Exactly. Another one, which is just weird, is the annual briefing on the relationship between the NSA and Cybercom. So it stipulates that starting on the 1st of March every and every year after, the Secretary of Defense must brief Congress on the relationship between the NSA and Cybercom. And what makes this weird is that the director of the NSA is also the director of Cybercom. So I, I don't understand why they need this report that is going to report on the relationship between the two agencies, which are run by the same leader or the same manager, director, however you want to put it. Maybe it's he's siloing it. Between his two split personalities. <laughs> yes. His left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, literally. That's probably for the best if you knew what the left hand was doing. Yikes. Then the last one I wanted to touch on is the study of cybersecurity threats posed by foreign manufacturers of U.S. cranes. That's very uh, specific. At U.S. ports. It's weirdly specific. Yeah, so they say in, in consultation with the, the Secretary of Homeland Security, the Secretary of Defense and the Director of Cybersecurity and Infrastructure, or the CISA, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, that's... That name is just terrible. They're going to do a study to assess whether there are any cybersecurity or national security threats posed by the fact that the cranes are manufactured by foreign countries. I mean, they're fixed in position, right? Sure, they can be damaging. They can swing something around for a while, but it can't reach very far. It, 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 it's ludicrous. <laughs> and besides, if we keep up our trade war, the cranes won't be used at all anyway. I'm just going to sit there. And the last thing in episode, back in episode 79, we actually talked about the proposal for software vendors to provide DOD with a software builder materials. So that was actually cut from the NDAA. So that whole quagmire, which is what it certainly was going to be, was cut. We'll see if they try to bring that up again in another couple of years or next year. But of course, why this matters is, you know, they're just wasting more of your, more your tax dollars and the, the money that they're inflating, which is making the whole economic situation worse in the whole country. What? That's, they wouldn't do that. They have our best interests at heart. Right. I mean, why would they pass the, well, what they call it the Fighting Inflation Act or whatever for another <laughs> trillion dollars if they didn't have our best interests at heart? So true. So true. Now you're getting it. Now only from you, Matt. Our next article, we have sextortion, business disruption, and a massive attack. What could be in store for 2023? And this is a lovely predictions for 2023 article. It's kind of super boring. And that's why I wanted to include it in here is because it's really not. Because it fits uh, in with a the theme of our podcast. So first point, expect more disruptive attacks. Ransomware attacks have fallen by 8%. They're thinking that people are just going to be disrupting stuff instead of raising money, which it's kind of weird to me because criminals need to make money to continue doing crime. Yeah, you would think that would be the motivation for crime is actual money. 
Uh, but I did mention a couple of episodes that they could just be hacked off and decide to burn, burn the place to the ground because they have free time now because they aren't making any money actually doing ransomware. Yeah. Second point, he makes his signs are pointing to a catastrophic attack on a network or service provider like Gmail, WhatsApp, or Microsoft. As has been pointed out many times, especially with the latest thing coming out of Twitter, the biggest tech companies with the biggest security budgets and the, we, we hope, very smart security folks are still having severe challenges. Yeah, and actually this kind of makes sense if you are, are watching the, the employment news where all these people are getting laid off from Google and Amazon and Facebook, that how many of those people are being cut from the security staff, which is just going to leave them shorthanded to deal with more complex sets that are coming along. And if AWS were to get hit or Google, you know, so much of the country's digital infrastructure relies on those kinds of cloud providers, and that could be a serious, serious problem. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. I'm still getting hits from various tech company recruiters. So it doesn't seem like the security sides are getting hit yet. Although maybe they are, and we're just not seeing it. We might be taking this as an opportunity to clear out their lower performers as well. It could be, because that's one thing about being in security is it's all overhead. Uh, you know, security doesn't actually make money for their organization. They're to prevent the organization from losing money. So it's much, it's much more difficult to justify the headcount and the money spent on security when you don't have really good numbers to back that up. It's true. Supply chain attacks will persist and grow. Super bold. I am, whew, he's going out on a limb here. Yeah, I never would have expected that to happen in 2023. Or I don't expect that to happen. Completely, completely out of the blue statement there. Yeah. And his final is personalized attacks will target executives and their friends and family by, for example, demanding money or network access credentials in return for not releasing valuable or sensitive data they already have. This is novel. Yeah, I've never seen this in a movie before. Or attackers offer to pay money in return for passwords or other information to help them carry out a future cyber attack. And they've actually done this before. I think we've actually talked about that a couple of times on the, the podcast. Yeah, there's been, they've been targeting insiders and trying to pay insiders. The harder part there is always finding the insider because if you're too, you know, forward and trying to find them, then that alerts the company they may have an insider. So yeah, yeah shocking, shocking predictions all, one and all. All right. And our second to last article is cyber attacks set to become uninsurable, says Zurich Chief. And this comes to us from the Financial Times. The chief executive of one of, one of Europe's biggest insurance companies has warned that cyber attacks rather than, un, that rather than natural disasters will become uninsurable. Unnatural. <laughs> un, I almost said unnatural. <laughs> uninsurable as the disruption from hacks continue to grow. And that's a quote directly from the Financial Times. I love it when the article writes a better summary than I can, and I just steal theirs. Yeah, copy and paste is easy. <laughs> but for... The, the amount of money that they paid in natural disasters is only expected to be a hundred billion for 2022. Say only, only. Well, I I put that in there specifically as a comparison because they're saying that the the cyber the insurance for cyber tax is going to be more than natural disasters. And natural disasters was a hundred billion. Mm. It's, it's just so a rounding error. It's just a rounding error. So new restrictions. For example, like we talked about the Lloyds of London, where the government or acts of war are, are not going to be paid. And I think that may have been in the same podcast or one of the adjacent podcasts where we mentioned the denial of the claim 
for $100 million involving the NotPetya attack. So the, the executive is Mario Greco, and he's the chief executive at Zurich. And he said the governments need to step in for a private public scheme to handle systematic cyber risks that can't be quantified, like earthquakes or terror attacks. So on one hand, I hate the idea that the government steps in and preserves the insurance company profits, because that's always what happens, right? Whenever the government steps in to save a company, it's always to... It's always to save the profits. But then on the other hand, if private companies are being targeted by state actors with state actor resources, then shouldn't the governments help defend? And I, I, I don't know. I just, maybe, maybe, maybe they should, but maybe insurance isn't the right way. Well, it's still a private company. And if they are going to, you know, if, if you look at it as the originating company, you know, the company that's attempting to get the policy, then... What they're doing is they're taking a look at the risk that they have. I assume they are performing what mitigations they can. And then they're going to the insurance company and saying, hey, we have this residual risk and we want you to insure against that residual risk. Now, the, and that's the whole point of, of insurance is the risk transfer of that residual. So why should the taxpayer be, be, end up footing the bill for that residual risk in the event that they are not adequately prepared for the event or that the event comes to pass. I mean, and the government itself is terrible at risk assessment anyway. If, if the government needs to step in in order to fill this gap, then the, the, company, the companies did not assess their risk to begin with or did not properly assess their risk to, to begin with. And maybe they should just go out of business and make room for other companies that are better prepared to do so. So what does this say about security if the insurance companies are throwing their hands up and saying it's too expensive? And it sounds like the, the like you were just talking about, it sounds like the companies themselves are also being like, eh, this is too expensive. We're just going to insure it. The insurance company has to accept that. You know, they don't, you know, it's not like, I mean, because the company, the insurance company could look at it and say, well, the risk is too high. You've not mitigated enough. So we aren't going, going to accept that risk transfer. You know, it's an agreement between. I mean, that's that's, that's kind of what they're doing, right? Company. That's kind of what they're doing right now, is being like, "Yeah, we don't, I think we were wrong about this." Well, I mean, that's what this guy's predicting. They aren't actually doing this yet. That's, yeah, but they're working their way up. I mean, we've been we had an article early last early this year. We're still in 2022. Although by the time this comes out, it's going to be the future. Early in 2022, talking about how insurance prices were going up this year. So it's working its way up there. Right, but but. Uh, in, in the increased cost is, is, should be commensurate with the amount of expected risks to be lost. They still haven't gotten to the point now where people won't do the insurance, but the insurance company is trying to better because they're still learning about this cyber insurance. They're still learning about what risks they should and should not accept. You know, we were talking about before about like a, a ransomware addendum or like the Lloyds of London saying, Hey, if it's an active war, which governments in the physical world, the insurance companies don't pay out for acts of war anyway. So they're just kind of bringing that into the, the cyber realm as well. But the challenge there is that a physical act of war, it's pretty obvious that it's a physical act of war. Where in the virtual space, it's, it's less so. And with the U.S. government, find any hacker who lives in Russia or China to be government affiliated. That makes that determination much more difficult. Yeah. And I'm not sure if this is going to provide the incentive we need to actually get IT correct. I've, I've been pretty vocal about it that I think about 80 to 90 percent of security is just doing stuff correctly doing stuff in IT correctly and then 
but uh, yeah, I don't know if this will be enough or if people just shrug their hands and throw up their, throw up their hands, shrug their shoulders and throw up their hands and say, well, I guess we didn't have insurance before and I guess we won't need it now. Well, hopefully they just reevaluate what their, what their, what their risks actually are and are better focused on protecting the things that are going to be the, the, uh, the high cost events like a ransomware versus like just a website defacement or something like that. Well, and that That's leads to a bit simplistic, but that leads to my next question, which is, are these real numbers anyway? We all remember how when Kevin Mitnick was charged, the company he socially engineered claimed he had $300 million in damage. We reviewed the cost of a breach report earlier this year, which claimed the average cost was $4.35 million, uh, of which notification of breach response made up approximately one-third, detection and escalation made up one-third, and local biz lost business costs made up the final one-third. Whereas I believe a lot of that is sunk costs, people that are employed, like the detection and escalation. A lot of that is time spent by people who are employed to detect and escalate it. And some of it's made up, like lost business costs. Sure, if, if you're ransomware, you can probably make an accurate guess at how much business was lost and you can certainly make an accurate approximation of how much was paid but for a lot of other things like you're talking about like a defaced website it's almost impossible to actually put a real cost to that well they're they're also inflating the cost by spending money on the CISO's wish list that he didn't get approved in the budget before then on stuff that or or buying all new desktops or rolling out a whole bunch of different security tools that are actually not specifically designed in order to mitigate the the risk that was exploited or 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 what was impacted by that specific event they're saying they may say oh well we need a new web proxy even though the web a new web proxy may not have prevented the event which actually happened so it's just they go through their wish list and buy all this extra stuff and then they tie it to the in, the incident it's the whole you know don't let a crisis go to waste where they they get money thrown at them and they just spend it on what they wanted before without actually having a link to the specific event. I don't need to say the next thing about inflate. I already said they're inflated and made up. Yep. So if you want to talk about uh, risk management, or I guess you already covered now, that. No, we've bit. already kind know. of gone through that too. And of course, why is this important is that nearly every company is purchasing cyber insurance or is thinking about purchasing cyber insurance or has it and their prices are going up. So this is something that has to be considered for the future of all companies. Where are you going to spend your money? Are you going to spend it on additional cyber insurance or the increased cyber insurance costs? Are you going to spend them on, on risk mitigations or, you know, what are you going to do with your funds? Because if you spend $10 here, you can't spend it over there. Well, and the interesting thing too is going to be when both of those go up. Like what if your insurance next year doubles, but then their requirements also double. Their requirements is maybe last year was you have to have a firewall and this year it's you have to have a firewall and you have to use 2FA and you have to use a proxy. And next year it's you also have to have EDR, et cetera, et cetera. You may well, get then, hit on both sides there. Well, then you have to determine if you're going to get caught skimping on the other stuff. Yeah. So what should you do about this? Well, I think you probably need to start thinking like you were just talking about. You need to start thinking about what happens if you get caught out on both sides or what happens if it comes in, you can't afford insurance. Uh, I was talking with someone the other day where they were discussing how their management had made promises to third parties about that they maintain these standards. What if your insurance is one of those promises and suddenly you decide you can't afford it? That may screw up some of your business. Or who knows, maybe it'll provide a little bit of extra incentive to increase your budget. Well, hopefully the uh, third party asked for an artifact, which demonstrated that that was true and just didn't take their word for it. 
Yeah. But this takes us to our last article, which is the last pass breach. You may have heard of it. Heck. And we're going to start off with a article or a, a blog post by Bruce Schneier. But there are going to be several links in the show notes to other articles discussing this because believe it or not, people thought this was a big deal. So back in August, LastPass announced that they had suffered a, an, an attack, but had, had said at the time, no customer information was touched. Well, it turns out, mm, not quite so accurate. So the, at the time, well, I guess maybe that's a misstatement because at the time that was true. But what was not revealed at the time was the information that they acquired during that intrusion allowed them to gain access to customer information. So much customer information. Supposedly, it looks like the bad guys got access to a backup that had customer account information, metadata, including end user names, billing addresses, email addresses, IP addresses they were accessing LastPass from, and customer vault data, which had a mix of encrypted and unencrypted data in a proprietary binary format. Encrypted data was usernames, passwords, and secure notes, so thank goodness for that. The URLs, however, were unencrypted. I think that's weird. Why not encrypt the entire thing? I don't know. And the interesting bit about the unencrypted URLs, somebody pointed out <clears throat> that unencrypted URLs may include password reset links. So I actually downloaded and checked mine out and mine has unencrypted and mine has password reset links in it. So whoops. Where's, the, where's that at? Because I would think that uh, in the last pass, there's a URL that you go to to log in. I would think that would have been the stored, math, uh, stored URL. You're saying there are other stored URLs? Now, I don't think so. So what I did was I'm in the process of currently migrating mine. And part of the way you migrate it is you export your list of a CSV of unencrypted data. And so it's got a column for URL, column for username, column for password, column for TOTP, whatever that is, column for extra, column for whatever you called it, column for your group, and a column for whether it's a favorite or not. So when I look over this list of URLs, I can see a number of these, which are, so here's one. This appears to be my daughter's Pokemon account, club.pokemon.com slash US slash Pokemon trainer club slash forgot password slash reset slash, and then there's a, what I'm guessing is a unique identifier after that. Oh, it's, that's probably not valid anymore then, because usually those password reset URLs are only valid for a certain yeah. period of time. Some people have stated that some of them are. Let me actually hold on and see. Let me go submit this one. Yeah, all right. So the Pokemon Club one does say your password reset attempter is invalid or is timed out. But some people have been saying online that some of them are still open. That's possible. And some of them do have information in them that may deliver other, like cause some of them include all the fields. So some of them include redirects. Some of them may include your username in the field. I'm just taking a quick look to see if I can find anything interesting in here. Yeah, here's my, <laughs> so here's one. So here's one for movies, all access for Warner Brothers. The saved URL has my username in it and it has a, it's got a field for the path. Oh my God. It's got my password in the effing URL. No way. Holy <laughs> shit. It really does. That is awesome. It says register question mark email equals has my email and password equals. And since this is a CSV exported, I can just scroll over and see that that is my actual password in the URL. That's awesome. It's got my first name too. What the actual, what in God's name? Wow. This is ridiculous. It's, yes, got, my, it's got my birthday in there. In the URL? In the URL. 
Holy cow. So I mean, the whole URL like is like a database entry effectively. It looks like it's encoded. It's percent something, no percent something, percent something. No, that's just Unicode. Yeah. Well, I said it was encoded. So, but I yeah, it's got my country. Oh my, this is, oh my God. Wow. That is, that is terrible. Ridiculous. Yeah, I agree. That is terrible. So anyway, so yeah, so I'm going to edit out some of that to make it a little easier. But yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of interesting information in these redirects. It's got my WordPress email address in the thing. All right, I'm going to stop looking at that. I'm going to go back to the notes now. So yeah, so the URLs are unencrypted. And if there's any sensitive information in the URLs, which there may be, I'm looking, I looked over the first 150 URLs and I only found two that had sensitive information in them out of mine, but there may be others in yours. So that would probably be once we get to where we are recommendations, that might be where you start is you export your information, you figure out which ones have sensitive information in the URL. And those are the ones that you do something about. Holy cow. That's terrible. So if the so the thing is that now that the, the attackers have downloaded the entire vault for all these users, all they have to do is be able to guess the master password to get in. Yeah. And mine's one, two, three, four, five, six. So whew, I'm in trouble. And I get to change my luggage. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess the question here is what percentage of master passwords are weak and guessable? Is it 5%, 10%, 50%? So I know that, I know that LastPass will warn you if you put in a weak password, but it doesn't stop you from putting in a weak password. Oh, so they don't have that because they recommend a 12 character password. So they don't require yep. a 12 character password though. I, I don't know if they do or not. I just know that more than once they've warned me, especially for like legacy sites that I had where I entered my password after, after I got in LastPass. And then I added it to LastPass and LastPass would be like, this is a really weak password. Are you sure you want to oh, use this? Oh, yeah, yeah, But not for the master password though. Yeah. I have no idea what their requirement for their master password was. Yeah. Because the, the site passwords, you're at the mercy of the, the site owner as to what the password restrictions are or, or whatever. So you might be restricted to just numbers or, or letters or whatever, as well as length. But LastPass controls the design of the master password. So they could force people to have 12 digit or 12 character master passwords. All right. All right hold on. Here is the record. What is the LastPass master password? We recommend the following best practices when creating your master password. Use a minimum of 12 characters, but the lengthier, the better. It does not actually, uh, does not actually state that you have to use uh, uh, at least 12 characters. Well, I'm not going to change mine to a weaker one just to try it out. <laughs> but I yeah. would like to think that they would they would force that restriction. I don't know. But who knows? Because they, they, they're also a business and they don't want to raise that bar too high for regular people to start using LastPass. So yep. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's irresponsible to keep the bar that low. I agree. I, oh, I also don't run a uh, but I think if you have a reasonably good password, you're probably all right. Because there are millions, literally millions of LastPass users. And whoever's got these vaults cannot attack them all. So I would expect them to grab the easy ones. So the simple passwords, the reused passwords from compromised accounts. Yeah, that one's um, going to be big. They're doing that right now. They're working their way through all the passwords and trying them all out on all the vaults. Right. And that's probably going to come to probably tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. And of course, because the vaults are offline, MFA doesn't matter. But if you have a reasonably good password, you can't... and the expectation is that your password is not going to fall within that bottom 10% of easily guessed or compromised, reused compromised credentials. 
you're probably are uh, because they just are not going to get around to trying to brute force your password because there's yeah. too much low hanging fruit below you. That is probably true, but I will admit I'm taking a different tact, which we can talk about when we talk about what we should do about it. But there's another option. What if the master password algorithm is weak in some way? Bruce Schneier links to an unverified tweet from someone named Cryptopathic, where someone states that they had a 16 character password with all character types used. And they were able to, someone was able to access their wallets, their crypto wallets and move out data. And they said the crypto wallets were randomly generated and LastPass was the only place that those were. He did point out it could still be a weak password. 16 characters with a lot of character types could be like exclamation mark password one, two, three, four, five, six or something. Someone else reached out to the crow, which is something I've never heard of before and said they had a wave of comprehensive attacks against many of her accounts despite a 19 character password. So is what they were saying that she had a 19 character password on her vault. Yes. As the master so, password. So they brute forced that got into her vault and then started attacking all of her accounts. Yes. In her vault. Yep. So, and that be all that being said, I think that if the master password algorithm truly was weak, these probably wouldn't be our initial, we'd probably be seeing a lot more. They'd probably be logging in and just checking and trying to find before they, you know, tip their hand and notified everybody that there was something wrong with that. They wouldn't be making these little penny ante attacks individual. Yeah. Like I said, it doesn't, that, that statement there with the 19 character password doesn't make sense unless it was an easily guessed or a previously compromised. The account. argument here, the argument here is there's something wrong with the master password algorithm. Like maybe there's multiple collisions. I don't know. They're, they're, they're arguing that the password may be strong, but the encryption is not good. And that's actually, there's a, there's a thread later which I'm going to go ahead and jump to now. There's somebody named Jeremy Gosney, who I don't know who that is. I don't know if we should trust him, but apparently a number of people thought they should be able to trust him. PCI Compliance Guide, founder and CEO of TerraHash, world-renowned security and password-cracking expert. Huh, I guess we can. Uh, according to his, according to the bio he wrote? That's according to Crunchbase. Okay. So, but it is probably a bio he wrote. He's a senior principal engineer with the Paranoids at Yahoo, a friendly neighborhood password cracker and member of Hashcat development team author of HMAC, Bcrypt, and Pufferfish 2. So he's developed some encryption algorithms. So I don't know, it seems reasonable. Former CEO of TerraHash. So he said that they have a whole bunch of LastPass issues. He said he used to really evangelize LastPass and try to get his friends to use them. But back in 2019, he has stopped. And the reason he gave is they're making a whole bunch of crypto 101 mistakes, like they are rolling their own encryption. Ease, they're using less entropy than they can. A downgrade, leaked hashes, leaked keys, et cetera, et cetera. So that would imply to me that there might actually be some validity to the master password algorithm being weak, except for the fact that, again, you wouldn't show your hand if you were able to crack all those passwords by messing with a couple of individual accounts. You would see like a wave of simultaneous money transfers out of everybody's banks. Yeah, either that or you, or they, they do a bunch of peeking, right? Yeah. To see yeah, yeah. who they would want to, to hit. Yeah, yeah. you do that first and then you would plan it out and you'd figure out like who's got the biggest bank accounts, who has money and like crypto wallets that we can move out without there being a chance for them to claw it back, et cetera. That's probably the first one. We'd probably see crypto go first and then bank accounts go second and then like clear out retirement accounts next. So, but anyways, so he also said that LastPass also keeps track of every site you visit and use LastPass at. 
and the option to disable the telemetry and the UI does not actually disable it. He mentions that when the vault is decrypted, it's stored in memory, given how often everybody knows Mimikatz is used. I know that Mimikatz doesn't directly target that, but pulling things out of memory is pretty easy, which actually that makes me wonder what everybody else does as well. I actually recently switched to 1Pass and I noticed that every time you lock the computer and come back into the computer, you have to re-log in, which is a little bit of a pain, but it does indicate that it doesn't stay resonant in memory forever. With LastPass, you only logged in once when you log into the computer and apparently the vault just stayed in memory the rest of the time. Well, that's configurable. Interesting. That's good to know. Apparently, Tavis or Mandy went hunting for issues in the LastPass browser extension, found a whole bunch of bugs and reported them. And there's more in the thread. It's a Mastodon thread at infosec.exchange. I've included it in the show notes. There's, there's lots. And this is actually what made me decide to roll off of LastPass. Because again, like what David was saying, my master password is not weak guessable. It's unique. I don't use it anywhere else. I thought that I was pretty fine, but now I'm a little bit worried. Yeah, I hadn't heard about the the crypto one-on-one mistakes that they were making before. And concerned how long they've been doing this, that's disconcerting. Yeah, it makes me wonder if it's like on purpose, like if they're just like, ah, eh, we don't care about spending money. Or if it's like technical debt, like maybe when they initially wrote it, they wrote it poorly and they haven't gone back to fix it. I don't know. Uh, but Bruce Schneier recommends using a password vault, but not a cloud sync one. Yeah, is that? workable like a big like every time you change your password you've got to what manually like copy it onto your phone or just sign you can only sign into stuff on your phone when you're sitting at your computer that would seem to be the case <laughs> that's interesting i mean unless there's a way to exchange data unless you want to keep it well no that's i was gonna say you you keep your vault in your dropbox and then you sit back and forth. <laughs> but yeah that's terrible that's probably just as safe as what LastPass is doing might be even safer uh, at least they wouldn't know to go looking for it in your Dropbox. Uh, I feel like, wasn't there something? I remember, did you ever use those USB portable apps? No. So there was a thing, there's something called portable apps where you could install various things on a USB drive, like a text editor and some other stuff. So you could consistently use the same tools no matter where you were. You just had to plug the thumb drive in. I used to do that back when I was a government contractor before they blocked all the USB ports. Before you were found out. Yeah, it was me. It was me. So, and then finally, also, what could attackers do if they just know all the URLs you have credentials to, even if they can't break the encryption into your vault? Well, now you're going to get all kinds of targeted phishing emails, especially if, you know, the URLs contain your username and stuff like that. That's super fun. So what you can do about it is, you know, <laughs> cry, but, you know, changing the password to your vault isn't going to isn't going to help you because the copy of the vault that they have is already offline and they're already working on cracking it. So changing your vault password now is not going to help you. So what you have to do is change all your accounts, which are within the vault. And I, of course, would recommend doing it if you're going to in a prioritized fashion. So like email, financial institution stuff, banks, retirement accounts, stock trading, et cetera. If you have, now, if you have crypto on these accounts, which are in your vault, that is a layer of protection for you because they still don't have that MFA token for those accounts. So that would help you out a bit. But of course, MFA is now foolproof. And if you have crypto keys in your vault, you need to move those wallets to new wallets right now, because that's the only way you're going to get, you're going to protect those. Yeah. And I would, I agree with his, I agree with David's list for the first priority. And then second priority is probably things like social media. Sure. They can't 
get any money out of you that way. But I'm sure that somebody juvenile could have a lot of fun messing with your life on Facebook or Instagram. And then there's probably a third tier where stuff that just doesn't matter. Like maybe you have an informational account in, you know, for example, here I, I signed up for an app called Merlin where that helps you identify birds and you had to create an account on it to use it. I don't care about that one. They can have that one. I can have my, my cornell.edu birds account. Yeah, but of course, uh, you'll have stored credit cards at vendors and things like that that might take take advantage of. So you could end up yeah. having to do a bunch of fraud things that, well, I guess not a bunch because depends on how many credit cards you have, but you have to get your credit cards reissued. <laughs> My $300 credit limits. Yep. Big spender. Big spender. But that's all the articles we have for today. Thank you for joining us and follow us at Serengeti Sick on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. 